Good morning, fools. It is Sunday. Hope everybody is not too hungover, though I'm not sure how hopeful I should be about that. (laughs) It's Sunday morning, special early edition of the podcast. You know why? Because guys like Montana Skeptic and guys like myself, we like to get our shit done early in the morning. You know, get this stuff out of the way so we can enjoy our day. But we wanted to make sure we put it down for you today, which is why we're here on the world's best and or worst podcast, depending on who you ask, the QTR Podcast. Hello, today is August 9th, 2020. Happy to be with you today. Today's podcast, like all of my podcasts, would not be happening without the support of my patrons, and I mean that. This podcast would not be happening if it weren't for my patrons. By the way, I lost about 12% of my patrons due to COVID, and some people have been coming back and picking up the slack, and I just want to let those people know I support it very much. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at JM Bullion, who is my exclusive gold and silver provider. JM Bullion has been in business for nearly a decade. They have done over $3 billion in sales. It's the only place that I order my gold and silver bullion from. That is no bullshit. That is the truth. They turn my orders around quickly. They ship quickly. They always have a lot of stuff in inventory. They are a pleasure to work with. And QTR podcast listeners can email Kathy at jmbullion.com. That's K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com. She is a saleswoman specific for QTR podcast listeners. And if you're very nice to her, she might give you $5 off your order and free shipping. Tell her that QTR sent you JM Bullion. No better time to be buying gold and silver than right now, folks, because it looks like the whole damn thing is about to come off the rails if you ask the Q-Man. But again, this isn't financial advice, and I hold no licenses, nor do I hold no registrations. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Sanglucci Steam Room is a -a one-of-a-kind piece of software that has also been around for about a decade. It is the original piece of software that was used to track unusual options flow and big money coming into the illiquid options market. Forecasting where the market is going to go based on options moves was something that Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus pioneered 10 years ago. Nobody on the street was doing this. They were the people that coined the term sweepers. They pretty much made unusual options activity a thing with the steam room. So these guys are innovators. They're the first to do it. The software has evolved immensely over the last 10 years. They're working on a new iteration now. Charlie Bathgate was just telling me a couple of weeks ago. And it's a piece of software that can pay for itself quickly if you don't trade like a herb. Check out my friends at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. The link to the Steam Room is in the podcast description. You can also get their 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that they use to become a seven-figure trader, as well as the Sang Lucci Master Course, which is a way to learn about the market, tape reading, market psychology, and all of that happy horse shit without all the jargon of the financial industry. Brought to you by a real individual, my good buddy, Sang Lucci. Speaking of people that I am friends with that support the podcast, my homeboy Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path is celebrating his one-year anniversary as a platform. The Trader's Path is an innovative and new day trading platform that offers things like daily watch lists. They offer a live stream. They trade red markets, green markets, stocks, and options. And it's really just a great community to surround yourself with, especially as the market is going haywire here. Pete Hedgetus started the Trader's Path because he wanted to create a day trading service 
that was different from the ones he had used. The ones he used, he got the impression he was being front run. He got the impression that the people were just after his money. And he's like, listen, it's about more than this. I want to create an actual community of people that help each other, a free exchange of ideas. And that's exactly what the trader's path is. I know a lot of my listeners have gone over there and they are enjoying it. I'm getting great feedback from Pete. Pete is an honest guy to do business with. He will give you a discount if you tell him QTR sent you. So check out my friends over at the trader's path. The link to that is in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my homie shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my brother Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, and some of my newest patrons like Sivert Wallen. Thank you so much, my friend. Robert Mintner, Corey Matthews, and JP just signed up. I appreciate that. James F., George Baker, Dave Swingle. You guys are fucking awesome. Chris and Chris Bott are in the house. Mike Fay and Will, Gabriel Steuben. How about Ian Boyle? How about some patrons that have been with me for a while supporting the podcast since early 2019, like Mike Tocheri and Bryce Kiever. Thank you so much. Jira Billis, haven't forgotten about you. Grant Garden, I know you're still in the house, my brother, and I appreciate that, along with my buddy, Samuel Pearson. What's up, Samuel? Haven't talked to you in a while, buddy. We'll have to catch up. Two rules for this podcast. First is two drink minimum, folks. It's Sunday. I recommend something like a mimosa or shots of whiskey to the face. Be creative with it, folks. I want you to be able to express yourself with your drink ideas at 8 a.m. Eastern. (laughs) Let's go, baby. It's the weekend. Finally, this podcast is not investment advice. Neither I nor Montana Skeptic advocate that you do anything that we say or listen to anything that we say in this podcast. This is just open-minded discussion for the purposes of getting things out there. I am not an investment advisor. I'm not an RIA. I am not a CFP. I'm not a CFA. I'm not a CPA. I have no little letters next to my name at all, which should tell you everything you need to know about me. Folks, please do not try this at home, and I do recommend that you do your research elsewhere. Today on the line with me, a man who I always think is finally going to have his last episode with me and move on to greener pastures and classier pastures, but he keeps coming back like a true gentleman, the one, the only Montana skeptic, and not only that, he is here at 6 a.m. his time. He is up early to uh, get all this stuff down. How are you today, sir? Really great, Chris. Wouldn't want to miss another Montana sunrise, so I'm up early. There you go. That's a good excuse to uh, get up at this crazy hour. I'm having a nice coffee here out of my Montana Skeptic mug, actually. Very apropos for this morning. Beautiful. Well, you know I have my coffee at hand as well. Beautiful. All right, so I imagine uh, the listeners will hopefully gradually hear the volume and cadence of our voices increase as the uh, podcast progresses and as we wake up (laughs) during the middle of it. We have a lot to talk about. I want to start with what's going on with China because tensions here between the U.S. and China seem to be at a, you know, five-year, 10-year, 15-year, I don't know what you want to call it, high, but certainly since I've been paying attention to the political landscape, 
I haven't seen tensions between U.S. and China like this in a while, except between Elon Musk and China. There, there doesn't really seem to be any tensions. You had written an article previously raising some interesting questions about how involved Elon Musk is with China. It was really a brilliant article and a something I think people really need to uh, be cautious about. I wanted to check in with you and see what's new on the China front. Well, great, Chris. Um, actually, I had written two articles uh, in close proximity to one another. The second sort of followed up on the first and covered points that some of the commenters made. And I collaborated with someone at Seeking Alpha named Maxed Out Mama, who is uh, just a very astute, knowledgeable, informed commenter who has studied uh, Tesla's financials carefully, has watched the China situation unfold. And when we went and read, you know, the underlying documents, the grant contracts under which Tesla gets the right to use the 214-acre tract in um, Shanghai, the various loan agreements, and they were, you know, amended and restated some of them and rolled over. It, it, it presented a, an alarming picture of a company that has really shifted its gravity to China, a company that, while it gets a so-called free factory, it's not exactly free, Tesla will have to eventually chip in $700 million or so of its own money, but it's non-recourse financing for the rest of it. And the worst that can happen to Tesla, which is pretty bad, is that if it can't repay its loans on time and it can't or won't honor the terms of the grant contract, then it could forfeit the factory. But what it means is, uh, based on all the details in those loan agreements, which none of the analysts have written about, which none of the journalists have written about, it is clear that Tesla cannot get any money, cannot repatriate any profits from China for a long time to come. And that begs the question, of course, of whether there will be any profits in China. And it's also clear that Tesla is very much subject to the whim of the Communist Chinese Party. And, you know, you see that evidenced in the fact that Elon Musk has become almost a propaganda outlet for the Communist Chinese Party. Uh, we we quoted in those early articles uh, Musk making announcements in China at a very at a conference where he lent a great deal of prestige by his presence on artificial intelligence, announcing China is the future. More recently, he has uh, announced, you know, China is such a great place to be. In the United States, the work, everyone is so entitled, but in China, they work really hard, and. Um, and we had the Chinese ambassador here praising him publicly, and all this gets widely reported in China. And this is at a time when, you know, as you say, tensions run high. Now, whether they're higher today than they were before, I don't know. A lot has to do with the volume of rhetoric coming from Washington, and that sometimes reflects reality, in, and sometimes it doesn't. But it does seem to be a bipartisan consensus that China has been engaged in, you know, some significant theft of uh, intellectual property from Western countries, the United States in particular, but others as well. And there is absolutely no doubt that China oppresses its um, some of its Muslim minorities. There is absolutely no doubt that it exerts 
an increasing and alarming amount of social control over its citizens. So at the time all this is happening, you have Elon Musk praising this government, never once criticizing a thing it does, not a word about Hong Kong, not a word about the, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Uyghurs or the, uh, the Muslim minority that you see being marched onto a train and blindfolded and given uh, brainwashing, uh, nothing but praise. Anyway, uh, you know, my collaborator and I are at work now on a follow-up article based on the Q2 results. And um, unfortunately, the, the, the hurricane that, you know, became a tropical storm here in the U.S. and caused a lot of uh, rainfall and wind in the Northeast has knocked out the power at my collaborator's home. So I'm not able to get her comments uh, quite yet to the draft we have. But here's... Here's what appears. So I keep. Am I am I narrating too much? Do you want to break this up a little bit, or should I talk about Q2? Yeah, let's talk about Q2 for a second because I had already jotted down in my notes here that I wanted to ask you about your take on the company's report. So if you want to kind of go off to the side on that real quick, what what did you think about Q2? Well, you know, my focus has been Q2 in China. Obviously, Q2 in overall for Tesla is the story of. Uh, a mismatch in Tesla's recognition of regulatory credits. Um, They are evidently recognizing regulatory credits they may not yet have earned from FCA. FCA has different accounting for that. It's, uh, to me, uh, suggests a a lot of financial statement massage by Tesla, which we saw in Q1, in order to manufacture these two quarters of gap profitability, in order to uh, become eligible for S&P 500 inclusion, assuming that the committee at the S&P 500 is just going to uh, cover its eyes and plug its ears and ignore all this evidence of financial massaging. And um, it's 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 so bad even that Tesla didn't even get cash for a big chunk of this regulatory credit. It, it instead took an account receivable. Right, yeah. Many, that. many, many unanswered questions. Very questionable. Obviously, this company, as an automobile company or as an energy company, you know, energy storage or solar uh, uh, main, uh, energy generation company, it is not profitable. It is only, only through these regulatory credits and especially this deal with FCA that it is profitable. Once that deal goes away, Tesla is back to being you know, a, a, another uh, back to where it was, un- chronically unprofitable, despite all the subsidies it gets, independent of FDA. Anyway, so that's my overall view on Q2. The only the r- big question in Q2 is whether the S&P 500 is going to reward all the people who pumped this stock relentlessly, far beyond any valuation that could be considered rational in the most exuberant scenario <laughs> are you are you are you going to reward these people for this kind of really quasi criminal pumping right. and I, i'm talking about people at the company as well uh and accomplishing all this by throwing into the mix two quarters of heavily massaged and manufactured uh and very you know inconsequential gap profitability are you going to reward this kind of behavior you know, I guess it would be completely consistent with what we see elsewhere in in financial markets in the United States these days. It's certainly consistent with the wire card accounting 
So why not, right? We'll, we'll see what they do and we'll see what happens. But obviously there was a huge run-up in the price based in part on the speculation that um, passive funds would be forced buyers yep. of Tesla stock. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what it boils down to there. But, you know, the focus on China, the, the narrative has been, well, yes, in Q2, uh, revenues were actually down in the United States materially. They were down in the rest of the world materially, with one exception, China. In China, the revenues almost, you know, a little bit more than doubled. I think the revenues were 1.4 billion, and they had been a, a under 700 million in Q1. No surprise, because you just had the factory come online there. So that's how, you know, the the, the narrative has been. Well, Musk is this forward-thinking man open the Chinese factory and that is now Tesla's path to profitability. It's, it saved the company thanks to his vision. So we, we maxed out mama and I with her really doing all the intellectual heavy lifting and, and me just being the stenographer took a, a dive into the financials and said, what, what's going on here? And what you see actually in China is that Tesla extended its borrowing during Q2 by 700 million. And you see some very strange things. Only 100 million of that was under the big loan, the factory loan, which is I think 1.2 or 1.3 billion, 1.26 billion. So why why borrow under a short-term facility if you can borrow under a long-term facility? The factory loan has a term of five years. More than that, in May, right at the time Robin Wren who was supposed to be Tesla's key man in China leaves the company under, you know, I think alarming, mysterious, strange, sudden circumstances. Tesla gets another one year working capital loan from China's big policy bank. Okay. Uh, ICBC, which makes loans when the government tells a bank to make a loan, this is an emergency. ICBC loans China, 560 million, excuse me, loans Tesla $560 million in May, uh, with the first draw happening in June. That is more, that is, you know, the working capital loan Tesla had from its consortium of banks was only 315 million. Now you get suddenly out of the blue a $560 million loan, a one year loan. It's unsecured, unsecured. Who makes an unsecured loan, right? Uh, under those circumstances. So very weird. And when you piece all the incomings and outgoings together, and if you make generous assumptions about how much of Tesla's CapEx, which I think totaled $545 million in Q2, is allocable to China, some of it clearly was Germany, some of it clearly was rest of the world, what you see is that China ran in the red to the tune of more than $300 million. So. The press, of course, reports China like it's a great success story. In fact, it's a catastrophe right now. And you see this in the model mix that Tesla has had to introduce in China. It's gone far beyond what it originally said, because I think the demand for the model mix it was hoping to sell in China just isn't there. We see Tesla uh, rushing to uh, introduce a lower cost, lower efficiency battery in China. So during the conference call, there was only one question about China and it came I think from Credit Suisse and uh, I, I think it was Dan Levy who said is China accretive to your gross margin and I think what that means is your automotive gross margin overall 
when you deduct the regulatory credits was about a little less than 19%. So was China better than that? Did China, is China helping make that a better story? And I think the answer he expected and everyone expected was yes. And in fact, what you got instead from Zach Kierkorn was a very evasive answer that I think properly read, fairly read, is no, China was not accretive. China was even worse than that. And Chris, as you know, Tesla's gross margin is a very phony calculation to start with. It doesn't include research and development, and it incorporates many other tricks that I have written about extensively and others have written about as well. So to say China, where we have, you know, labor that is far lower cost than the United States, where the workers get no meaningful benefits, where we have far lower cost of goods because we're using increasingly Chinese vendors. And Elon Musk said, yeah, we're, you know, we started the year at 40% Chinese parts and we're going to end it at 80%. And, uh, you know, which is in line with the Chinese government's goal of making um, th that factory a, a completely China affair from research and development to design to manufacture with the United States free to supply raw materials. Uh, what you see is a very bad picture in China, a picture of a company that is not performing up to what expectations were. You had the factory, you know, Tesla in its uh, 8K said that, that Shanghai has a capacity of 200,000 cars a year, which I believe. And the rate at which it's operating right now is only 60% of that. And if it's losing, First of all, I, I honestly can't understand how it lost that much money in China, but it did. It's about $10,000 per car, maybe more, which makes me really wonder whether the, some of this really isn't allocable to Q1 when they needed to manufacture that tiny $16 million profit. I, I wonder what tricks were used in China. And as you know, Chinese audits are close to – they're less than worthless. Uh, they hardly exist. And we now see some, finally some cracking down on that in the U.S. effect of 2022. Anyway, so to us, the Chinese picture is a deteriorating picture. It is the opposite of what the narrative is. It is the opposite of what the analysts have suggested. And, uh, you know, I continue to be amused and amazed and appalled <laughs> at the utter lack of meaningful, useful, detailed reporting on the implications of all these Chinese agreements and on what's really going on in China. Uh, and everyone wants to cover their eyes. And, you know, but we've seen this from the start with Tesla in just about every phase and aspect of its business. Yeah, it's wild when you think about it, because it really is a story that could be of significant consequence depending on at the very least it needs to be brought to people's attention which is why i thought your article was so good and uh i think zero hedge may have written up part of it also too and like linked back to your article or something because I, I think i read it there but i i didn't read it anywhere else and certainly you know you're careful and calculated in your wording and you weren't making any allegations, but you were really putting together, putting on the table some very interesting facts that people, I think, would be well served to be aware of. But the, the media in general here, whether you're talking about the financials or you're talking about this potential risk overseas or just one of the many realities that have uh, eluded Elon Musk, the... Uh, 
versus the fantasy that he has been projecting. The media has done an exceptionally poor job, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, Elon Musk is great at spinning a fantasy, but he's had many enablers. and uh, Oh, yeah. And some of them uh, more culpable than others. Some of them should know better. Some of them do know better. But he's had many enablers. This interesting and, pivot that he's taking now, too, with railing against uh, Bernie Sanders and railing against government subsidies now to or government stimulus to citizens, which, you know, the, in principle, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with him in, in disagreeing with Bernie Sanders on many things. But for him to come out and do that publicly after taking billions of dollars in taxpayer money to fund himself and enrich himself and pay himself out, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions in compensation as a result of those subsidies being there to prop up his business is absolutely appalling. And no one is saying anything about it. It is appalling. Yeah. Well, listen, I have a couple of comments about that. First, a lot of people are quoting an LA Times article that said Tesla had $4.9 billion in subsidies. And that is that was accurate when it was written four or five years ago. The number today is well north of $7 billion, well north. It may be closer to 10. I I need to add up, and I've started this, and I feel remiss in not having finished all the subsidies everywhere. And I'm talking about direct and indirect, whether getting a factory for nothing, uh, you want to count that, the free land in Nevada, the tra- tax credits, the tax abatements, the uh, tax deductions and credits that his – buyers get to take, which is, of course, a subsidy, right. whether you're talking about everything in Europe, the rebates in the United States, there, are, when you add it all up, it's north of $7 billion, I believe, and I hope to do an, a proper accounting. So the number is vaster than what Bernie Sanders said, okay, number one. Number two, if you wanted to say, what is the, you know, we see United States capitalism coming under increasing criticism as the social fabric phrase here in the United States. And, you know, people are blaming that capitalism is not the problem. Capitalism has made the world, uh, with the parts of the world that have embraced it far more prosperous. Everyone raised everyone's level of living. Crony capitalism, crony capitalism is the problem where well-connected people get special benefits because they have lobbyists because they have political influence when we when the governments have lots of money and lots of favors to give away you're always going to have more crony capitalism and elon musk is the paradigm of crony capitalism and hypocrisy i mean the guy is a gaslighter par excellence uh you know accusing other that his his enemies you know charlatans always need enemies and accusing his enemies in the oil and gas industry or wherever of um, having vaster subsidies than Tesla does. It is a total crock. No company per car manufactured has ever gotten anything close to the benefits that have been lavished upon Tesla. And the beat goes on. And, you know, I suspect that um, if Biden is elected, there will be pressure again to uh, uh, ramp up the tax credits in the United States to support the EV industry and that Tesla will continue to be a huge beneficiary of of all that. Yeah, it's the idea that the 
taxpayers have shouldered the brunt of billions of dollars for him in order to enable him to get to where he is, and there is not a semblance of humility or a semblance of being humble about that. Instead, he has used that to get himself to this point where he's worth, I don't know, $50 billion or whatever he's worth now, and then turn around and tell the U.S. taxpayer to go throw rocks, which is... I, it takes it takes a certain kind of person to do that. I'm not a psychologist, well, but it takes a certain kind of social and political milieu to get away with it, and we live in that political and social milieu. It takes uh, you know an extraordinary amount of investor and citizen ignorance and uh, yeah. willful blindness, and you know we, we it's I'm. I'm glad I'm in Montana, far from the matting crowd, because I don't like what I see anywhere right now. Well, anyway, and the media, like you said, has enabled that. The reason that the public doesn't understand how they're being taken for a ride, not just with Tesla, but just, you know, say with these uh, stimulus packages as well and, and what the central banks are doing and many other ways. But the reason that the public doesn't really have a firm grasp as to how they're being abused is because the media has done a terrible job, but but you know, with several exceptions, guys like Russ no. Th- listen, there's two. There's some key exceptions. The Financial Times has done a brilliant job on this. Okay, it really has. And Russ Mitchell has done some reporting that includes the facts about China. He hasn't gone in depth on it, but his reporting evinces an understanding of the dynamic in China. But take the Wall Street Journal. This is the premier United States financial journal. And who do they have on the Tesla beat? Tim Higgins. And that guy has his sins of omission and commission are staggering, especially when it comes to the subsidy and China story. And his writing is deceptive. And he's blinded himself to all this because he's writing a book about Elon Musk and he needs access to Elon Musk. And uh, it's a disgraceful it's disgraceful that Higgins acts like this. I think I really is it. Tim Higgins, I've met you. You're a nice guy. But as a reporter, you're a disgrace. I'll tell you that. And uh, the, his his editors too deserve some obloquy here. They have you know kept this guy on the beat, and uh, so you have really one of the most astonishing stories of financial massaging of stock market hype in the history of financial markets. And the Wall Street Journal has just been asleep at the switch on it. Now you know I'm not talking about hurt on the street. I'm talking about the news reporting. So there you go. If the Wall Street Journal can't get it right, why should I expect uh, Bloomberg to, right? Yeah, and you would think that with you know John Carney blowing up Theranos and what happened recently with Wirecard, that that would be a prompting to media organizations to remember what the positive impacts of good journalism can be. And yeah some of the good that can be done when journalism is done properly. I think his name is John Carey. Uh, John Carey, I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Some brilliant, really brilliant reporting. Anyway, what's our next topic, Chris? Let's move on to uh, what's going on with Skabushka here because, and I'm not in the loop completely, but I have seen some chatter over the last day or two about Skabushka and uh, Montana Skeptic. So rather than 
try to explain it myself. Why don't you just tell us what the hell's going on? Yeah, I'm going to, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have to be a little vague. So as you know, last year, Tesla sued Skabushka and it went and used a, uh, a procedure in California that is a very expedited procedure that allowed Tesla to go to court, claim that Skabushka was harassing Tesla employees in the workplace and get an injunction, a temporary injunction against him. Right. Uh, and it was a, in under California law, believe it or not, you're allowed to do this with no notice to the person you're getting the injunction against and without that person being in court when the injunction is granted. So Tesla, fully aware of all those things, went ahead and did it to Skabushka based on an allegation that uh, he was endangering the lives of some passengers in a Tesla car that was recording video, audio, and other data uh, probably in preparation for its uh, April 22nd autonomy day. This happened on April 19, April 16, if I remember. Okay. So, um, and Tesla in that same injunction said this Skabushka fellow had endangered Tesla employees or agents earlier in February on the factory grounds uh, by hitting them with a car. Um, so as you recall, I, sort of spearheaded a GoFundMe effort so that Skabushka could get representation. Uh, we asked the court to allow us discovery. In these expedited procedures, you usually don't get any discovery. That's how, that's how bereft of due process they are, okay? But we said, look, Tesla has evidence, videos from that February incident in the parking lot, all those recordings that the car was making and the people were making and the mounted cameras were making in April, how about, and these will surely show that our client is guilty. I mean, Tesla's accused him of this. It's got the videos and the audios. Let's see it, Judge, so right. we can just see how bad all this is. And Tesla said, uh, no, you're not allowed any discovery. And the judge said, actually, you know, this time I think maybe I'm going to allow the discovery. I'm going to cut back on the other stuff you asked for, even though in any normal proceeding you'd be allowed to have it. But let's take a look at all those video and audio. And, uh, Tesla said, Judge, are you serious? Do you really mean it? And he said, yeah, a second time. Yes, I actually did mean what I said the first time, and you have until, until dollar size, date X to produce it. So on date X, Tesla uh, leaked the story to its friends in, the, uh, in its propaganda outlets that it has so they could spin the story and dismissed its case so they wouldn't have to turn any of this stuff over. Okay, so in those proceedings, Tesla had accused this guy Skabushka, Randy Pothy of horrible things. And, and the natural consequence of that, of course, is that the Twitter gang immediately descends and accuses him of being a raghead terrorist. You know, he's a Sikh, by the way, uh, of being a murderer, of being a homicidal maniac, of being mentally unstable. Uh, people attempt to um, undermine his standing at the University of Michigan, where he's a graduate student and <clears throat> cause all sorts of problems in his personal life, as you can imagine. But that's, <clears throat> we allow that in the United States because there is something called the judicial privilege. And allegations that are made in a lawsuit are privileged. They cannot be, with very, very, very rare exceptions, they cannot be the subject of a defamation claim or a libel claim. And you know that's a good that's a good thing I guess <clears throat> we have <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> it's early here Chris we have a robust 
First Amendment. And, and uh, this is part of keeping it robust. But after Tesla dismissed its case, some months later, in an email correspondence with Plainsight, Musk repeated um, and expanded upon uh, and augmented some of the accusations against Skabushka. And Musk knew that those uh, allegations would be circulated. They were widely circulated. And again, the flying monkeys descend. And um, this time it wasn't in the context of litigation. And so uh, Skabushka, it's been reported, you know, Montana skeptic and Skabushka have sued Tesla. That's not it. That's not true. It's simply Skabushka has, uh, excuse me, have sued Musk. Skabushka has filed a claim for defamation in California. And um, I am, I have asked the court with, for permission to uh, represent Skabushka in the proceedings, to be able to appear in California court, to take depositions, et cetera. And my co-counsel is a California lawyer. And the, and so that's uh, that's for the court to decide. Those re requests are typically granted, and I anticipate and hope that this one would be. But I, no, it's not a suit by me personally against Musk. And this is not a, you know, who is more macho kind of thing. I, I really am almost loath to do it. I have no desire to uh, tangle personally with Elon Musk, but I do have a desire to see justice done for Skabushka. And, you know, all I can say is defamation cases are very difficult to win in the United States. You saw that with uh, the Unsworth case. They're especially hard to win against celebrities who have star power. They're uphill battles. That's probably that's probably for the best again, because, again, we have a robust First Amendment. We don't want people to be, um, you know, discouraged from exercising their rights of free speech. We want to give them a little latitude. But, uh, you know, the, the case here says this is a bridge too far. You've again called this man a danger to humanity and a killer, uh, a potential killer. So that's what this Kabushka case is about. And it will take a long time to play out, as these cases always do, especially in these times of the COVID virus. And, um, and I really, I guess that's really all I, I can or should say about it. Well, I'm glad that you're involved instead of Ellen Wood. We'll maybe we can spare ourselves the reflections from the lake after this one. Well, you know, I <laughs> I, I will let me just say it's an uphill battle. Yeah. And um and you know, the, this is there's no such as a slam dunk in any case. Sure. And a defamation case is always difficult. Yeah, I was puzzled by some of the choices made in that case, but that's that's water under the bridge. Yeah, and he actually just represented somebody that was in the news. I was reading a couple weeks ago where he said, "I wasn't he representing the Covington High School kid as well, Ellen yeah, Wood." I, I believe that's right. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember you telling me in the past that his specialty was settlements and that he wasn't he didn't have a super long track record as a trial attorney, and then he went and settled. I think with CNN, right, with uh, for that Covington High School kid. Yeah, there's a confidential settlement. I don't know the terms of it, and no one else does, to my knowledge. There's been a lot of speculation, but that's that's a story that's not germane for me anymore, you know. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing how this one unwinds, which, as things go in the realm of 
the legal world will probably be slowly. But uh, I also noticed that Martin Tripp is on Twitter too yesterday. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I, I, I don't. You know, there's a lot of human wreckage in the Tesla story. Uh, Vern Unsworth, uh, people at the company who have become whistleblowers. I think a fellow named Carl Hansen, Christina Balin, uh, Marty Tripp, who. What happened to him is egregious and outrageous. You know, Musk um, has a way of of attacking and smearing his critics, me included, by the way. But there's a long list, and Marty Tripp is one of them, and one I feel real compassion for. I feel you know compassion for all of them, but his story is so outrageous. What Tesla did to him is so wrong. He's gone on Twitter and he's evidently published a bunch of documents and depositions. And I I haven't dug into it, Chris. And it may be that he had no right to publish them, that they're somehow subject to confidentiality. Right. And some something got triggered with, with, with Mr. Tripp and he decided to hell with it. He's putting it all out there for the world to see. I'm hoping to read it all myself someday, I suppose. I'm hoping someone digs into it because – what I saw was just shocking in the testimony of somebody named Sean Guthrow and in the testimony of Elon Musk, where it's clear that they absolutely knew that this guy was not threatening to shoot up their factory, that that report was false, but they allowed reports to continue going out about it, where they were hacking his uh, personal cell phone and um, intercepting uh, and in real time conversations he was having on that phone that were completely his business and no one else's it sounds to me like very suspicious uh you know and egregious and very likely criminal behavior and uh that they would do it with such insouciance uh is really appalling and uh that evidence is now out there i'm hopeful that some of the panderers in the press will get off their knees and stop genuflecting to the charlatan and instead report on just what a vicious unhinged person he can be because uh assuming those you know the the sworn testimony is accurate uh i'm assuming it's accurate and that the allegations are accurate i mean these are testimony from people who used to work at tesla and from elon musk himself so Read it. I'm, I'm hoping we get some accounting for this kind of behavior. There were some interesting parts of that deposition on Twitter yesterday that I was looking at that appeared to show, and this is just my interpretation of what I saw, but they appeared to me to show Musk kind of tacitly acknowledging that he knew that Tripp's phone had been hacked um, and that he was essentially being surveilled. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. And, you know, again, um, I haven't studied it in enough detail to uh, really comment knowledgeably about how it all adds up. It is clear to me that Musk knew that the report that Marty Tripp was headed to the factory to shoot it up, he knew that was false. He knew that that was right. uh, uh, unsubstantiated, and he still allowed a report to go out. I think it was to Newsweek. Uh, you know, after he sent one earlier to uh, to a reporter at the Guardian, I think her name is Julia Wong in San Francisco. Good reporter. He, he allowed yet another report to go out after it was already clear that that was false. And uh, 
the guy, you know, his reality is what's in his head, and he feels justified uh, by his own paranoid fantasies to go ahead and attack uh, small people, little people, innocent people who have not nearly the resources he does, and um, he, he feels that it that the the world owes him adoration and owes him obeisance and all should bow down before him and that is elon musk all should bow down before the great savior of the earth uh, so you know what again i hope someone some reporter will do an in-depth take a look at all that documentation and um and put it all together yeah they won't and then when <laughs> when things go horribly wrong one way or another Everybody will turn around and say, how could this have happened? I mean, I've seen it a million times, as you have too. And just to circle back on Q2's financials, I mean, as a short seller, I've seen countless examples of companies just pushing it, kind of, we'll say, on a quarter-by-quarter basis to make the numbers or to maybe give the numbers a little luster that they would not have had otherwise and i have seen countless examples where you know every quarter that goes by this is how like some of the world's biggest frauds have occurred they start with small you know adjustments and things like that and then all of a sudden years later to keep up the charade it requires grander and grander um adjustments we'll say <laughs> until uh, one day those adjustments become so egregious that it is blindingly obvious what's going on and yeah you know this whole thing with the four quarters of profitability to be included in the S&P and you said earlier you're not sure whether or not they're going to allow of course they're going to allow them into the S&P of course they are i mean they're going to do the bare minimum amount of due diligence and also like many other regulatory um, organizations like the NHTSA, for example, the public's adoration of Elon Musk will trump reality. And I don't know what the number is going to be for the NHTSA, how many people have to die, how obvious it has to become that there are serious defects in these vehicles and in autopilot. Um, if they haven't seen it by now and they haven't acted promptly by now, I don't know what the hell it's going to take, but look at the Model Y. Right, this thing just rolled offline. It's gotten absolutely abhorrent quality reviews. I mean, people are getting white cars with panels that have two different colors on them. Bumpers are falling off the Model Three. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it could be any more obvious, and yet on we go. Well, a few things to unpack there. I think the S and P uh, committee is, you know, it's not a governmental agency, and I, I honestly. Uh, don't know what decision it will make that, that committee about Tesla's inclusion. Um, you know, I fear that you're correct that it will wave them in, and that will just result in far more damage to a larger number of investors That's eventually right. who will have this garbage now included in their portfolio. That's of, right. Which a portfolio that includes you know 499 other stocks that they know nothing about. <laughs> So um, that's that will just add to the tragedy of the innocent people who will be stuck holding the bag when when uh, when reality finally sets in about what this company is worth. Um, 
in terms of the garbage quality of the cars, yeah, the Model Y has an appalling record already. There are Tesla fans with videos up who have surveyed people, and you know, how, how many of you have ever have gotten a car that that had no problems? And uh, you know, somebody on Tesla who does really intelligent videos and is a big Tesla fan and owns a Model Y and has had lots of problems surveyed. I don't know a n- good number of people and. Uh, he didn't say how many, but I'm guessing it was upwards of 20 and only two of them said they had, they didn't report any problems. So there are always, you know, Tesla's <laughs> turning out cars that have problems that are big. Some of them are major problems. Now they say, Oh, but it's all cosmetic. Well, we'll see. The, the model Y is a, uh, is a heavier car. It's claimed EPA range of 300 some odd miles is a joke in re- in real life. People are getting, with heroic efforts closer to 270 to 250 and when you get into the winter or have to turn on your heater and the and the battery's colder you're going to see that shrink even further so uh it's a very noisy car it doesn't handle well uh and but people are noticing in europe you know where they have more choices about evs now because of the uh the regulatory scheme that's requiring everybody to introduce evs where they're presented with choices People have stopped buying Teslas, and you're going to see that increasingly. So that you know, the market will eventually. Yes, the Tesla fans say, "Look, here's their here's the new line." Yes, the the car expect the car to come with problems because that's Tesla. <laughs> expect it to come with problems, but you know, the stuff you love about it will will make up for it. So just expect to have to go back to the service center between one and five times to get the stuff fixed. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's that's what that's what we have to that's part of the mission now. So they're not even denying that the problems are there with the Model Y. They're saying, yeah, just expect to get some you know a lot of defects in your car. Make note of them and and ask Tesla to cover them under warranty. Good luck. Yeah, that's a fascinating attitude that nobody that I know, myself included, that has ever gone and bought a car has ever entertained. You know, when you buy a yeah. car, it is a process to try to figure out exactly how you are going to get the absolute best bang for your buck and really nothing is excused uh, during that process you want the longest warranty and the car with the highest safety and quality profile that's going to give you the absolute I mean it's a major purchase it's well thought out nobody nobody goes to buy a car and says well I'll just buy a pile of shit because you know hey sometimes cars have problems but I think you made another yeah. really good point a second ago which is one of the things that really irks me about monetary policy in this country is the fact that it does so much damage to people without them really understanding what's happening it's kind of playing in the background for a lot of people people that don't really understand you know inflation's effect on their savings and things like that um it it doesn't if you don't understand it it's it can really brutalize the people who can least afford it and you made a really good point about the s p inclusion which is there will be an extraordinary amount of people that gain exposure to this company through pension funds, 401ks, anybody with an SPY index fund, anybody with an SPY ETF, anything that's tied anywhere to the S&P, which is really the benchmark. It's it's essentially the market in general. Um, the amount of exposure 
that people are going to have to this company at this insane valuation now is absolutely frightening. And this is an example of why I think regulators really have an impetus to act because you're putting the average person, the average American that may not even understand the market, but wants to have some exposure to it because they want to invest because you can't get yield anywhere else. You can't get yield saving your money. That person now has exposure to this company. I mean, so the standard that we're holding them to should be immensely higher. I mean, that is absolutely frightening when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, as you know, the ground zero for index funds is the S&P 500. And Every Fidelity and Vanguard target fund for your retirement that says, when are you retiring? 2040, 2035, 2030, et cetera. They all uh, have exposure to the index, the S&P 500 index. And um, yeah, you're gonna, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people will now gain exposure to this scammy, scummy, fraudy company, unless the S&P committee decides They'd like to see a little more evidence that this company is, in fact, genuinely, sustainably profitable. Um, so, yeah, the other way to think about it is if this asinine valuation of this company ever collapses, well, it's going the, to the have valuation a, is right. The, the valuation will collapse because even if Tesla raised ten billion dollars tomorrow, paid off all its debt, it's still a, it still would not be anything close to profitable enough to sustain one-tenth of the valuation it now has. The fact is that all these uh, other manufacturers have been forced to make EVs, and they are now competing with Tesla. And in Europe, you see them out-competing Tesla. They are able to, and in instances forced to, take losses on their EVs right now so that they can continue selling their other line of uh, internal combustion cars. And um, yeah, it's there. There's no doubt about it. It will, it will be harmful to investors who are unwittingly, unknowingly uh, having this included in their portfolios if it's uh, if it's added to the index. No doubt about it. Yeah, in in as he would say, exponentially more ways huh. than it would be now. I mean, right now there's there's still ties to it, you know, maybe yeah. through tech funds or stuff like that, but. The exposure becomes immense. Let's uh, let's wrap up by talking about this move to Austin uh, that Tesla is proposing, and and what's going on in Germany as well, and and kind of yeah. the, the, the company's expansion here. Anything new on that front that you want to talk about or no? Uh, well, you know, in Germany, we the late news is that the um, the factory has shrunk. Okay, it's um, they're they have now uh, they're they are not going to be manufacturing cells or assembling batteries at the factory. They are not going to be uh, making plastic parts at the factory. Um, so in the, the factory will have a capacity of, of say 150,000 cars a year, I think is what's proposed. They still don't have all their regulatory permits that are required. There are still some more hearings to come on environmental issues. The Germans, you know, there's a big, strong environmental movement there in some ways even stronger than what you see in in a lot of the united states uh but but tesla is going to build this smaller factory and i think it has to because europe has the most remarkable pervasive uh 
emission standards that will force uh, a, a, a larger share of the automobile market to be electric vehicle or, or hybrid. And um, so that's where everyone is focusing. All the uh, manufacturers are now introducing EVs in Europe because they need to get a piece of the pie and they need to uh, meet the standards or, or, or suffer fines. And so you see cars being introduced rapidly over there. There are, By the end of next year, you're going to see something like 40 new EVs. Uh, so Tesla's going ahead with this factory in, in Germany because I think to sustain its growth narrative, it has to say it's going to try and capture some of this European market. Meanwhile, its actual share of the European market is shrinking. It is becoming minuscule. You see Tesla at the high end. Its sales of the Model S and X in Europe are almost down to an embarrassing number. The um, people far prefer the, the Jaguar. They far prefer the Audi e-tron. They far prefer the, uh, the Daimler Mercedes EQC uh, and other cars. The, the Polestar sort of sits in the middle of the market there between the Model 3, say, and the Model S, and it has gotten rave reviews. And there are a number of other EVs, I mean, the Hyundais, and Kias of the world with their cars are very impressive and compelling. You have Renault, which has some offerings that are compelling. And Volkswagen's about to start introducing its ID3, which is going to be a very successful car, I believe. Yeah, it's and, a cool-looking um, little car. And so, uh, you know, this the German factory is all about the narrative. I don't see Tesla being able to keep its head above water in Germany because its competitors are arriving en masse with better cars, more reliable, far better service, far better reliability, better pricing, and it's going to just crush Tesla margins. But ahead they plow in Germany. So God bless, and I'm happy to see <laughs> Tesla build that factory as fast as it can, okay, and hire workers who are the most – pampered in Europe they're the most expensive in Europe and you know you're building your factory in the highest labor area in the world uh, you, uh, you have to wonder about it anyway that's Germany and in Austin uh, you see you know Musk playing this game I'm leaving California well maybe I'll stay in California if you treat me right or uh, you know what went on in California with the COVID virus is really sad and um, when he kept the factory open in defiance of public health orders or reopened it but, you know, he, he said, I'm building a factory in Austin. I'm not sure Tesla has even closed on the land yet. I know it has an option on the land, and it's done a lot of planning. And there is no way on God's green earth that Tesla will keep Fremont open if it goes ahead in Austin. They can't have two factories in the U.S. because its, it's sales in the U.S. are flat, and Fremont is way under capacity right now. Right. It's not It's a capacity of 400,000 cars, right? This year, how many is Fremont going to build? Maybe, maybe 240,000. If, if Tesla can sell that many cars, continue to slash prices and pedal that many cars, I don't know. So Fremont's way under capacity as it is. The S and the X are near the end of the line. It doesn't appear that Tesla has any replacements for them. Its big story in Austin is the Cybertruck. And you had Elon Musk last <laughs> week admit well, you know, maybe the Cybertruck will have to be redesigned to look more like a real truck. And so it'll hit the market, you know, several years after other EVs, EV trucks have hit the market. 
Yeah, and there's some nice joke. looking there's some nice looking EV pickup trucks coming also. You know, you know, Ford is not going to drop the ball on an EV no. pickup truck. Uh, and so that you know, but of course, every political uh, entity, every state in the United States is always seduced by the promise of jobs. And Texas was seduced by the promise of jobs. What's remarkable to me about Texas is how relatively modest the subsidy packages. I think it totals from what I've seen so far. Now, Tesla is still angling for more subsidies and it may get more from the state. But right now what it has from the county authorities and school authorities is are tax abatements that are approximately $70 million spread out over 10 years or so. And that for that's chump change for Tesla. I'm sure Musk wants a lot more. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, again, this is all you know, in a, in a sense, Musk has a hissy fit, tells California he's fed up with them. I wonder to what extent, if any, the board was consulted in any of this or the board understands <laughs> that this means closing down California. You know, the, his whole market, the, 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 the entire Tesla culture is California centered. Yeah, the people that's right. who love the car, the climate that's most conducive to the car you know, not revealing its defects is an equable climate with not much rain and not much temperature extreme. And um, that's California. Yeah. And, and where state, you have the state, Silicon Valley mentality. People that want to save the environment too, you know? Well, on, along the coast anyway. Yeah. Um, so the, it's, it's hilarious to see him acknowledge that the cyber truck, which is a joke. I'm sorry. It's a joke. It's it, utterly not street legal it's not practical in any way it is a complete virtue signaling device for insecure men as best i can tell uh you know and to have him now admit that well it, may, it might not look like this after all i just i love it um yeah, but what know. about the reveal <laughs> you just yeah, just scrap right. the whole thing just pretend like it never happened like the solar roof yeah. tile reveal right isn't it well, I mean, isn't it hilarious Listen, how would you like to live in Buffalo? Your, 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 your state spent $960 million buying equipment for Elon Musk and his cousins and promised all these jobs. And now it said uh, we want, it pushed the promises off now for four years, and now it's pushed it into next year. Meanwhile, it's opened a factory in China. Take that, New York. We're opening a factory in China. And now we'll open one in Germany. And now we'll open one in Texas. And you people in, in upstate New York, you can just go to hell. We have nothing but contempt for you. And your governor, hes we know he's such an mm. idiot. We know he's such a inept, possibly corrupt idiot that he will do absolutely nothing because that would involve him admitting that he made a huge mistake when he promised that this was going to lead to the uh, high-tech revival of upstate New York years ago when he got on the stand with – you know, with Lyndon Reeve and Peter Reeve and made all these absurd promises. So, well, but don't worry, New York state is controlled by one party and one party only, and he will never be called to account. And you people in Buffalo can just freeze in the dark. That's, that's what our I attitude can tell you Tesla. is I worked in Niagara Falls in a factory on Buffalo Avenue in between DuPont and Olin and all of the chemical companies up there in Niagara Falls, New York. I worked 
in a plant at a factory for two and a half years. So I know firsthand, and I have friends in Buffalo, and many of the fabricators and the welders and the material handlers and the great people that I worked with up there also were either from Buffalo or went on to work at, uh, it's an extraordinarily industrious area, Niagara Falls. It's all industry. It's all heavy industry. A lot of them also went down to Buffalo to work at various, uh, and, and Buffalo has been trying for years to revitalize areas like these. They have these giant grain silos down there that they're trying to kind of give away for a dollar to just encourage businesses there. And the people there really need it. They really need the jobs there. Niagara Falls is not in good shape. Buffalo is not in good shape. So to do it to that area of West New York specifically, where again, I have firsthand experience. I know what it's like there. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Buffalo. I've spent a lot of time in Niagara Falls, New York. I mean, those areas are hurting desperately. And for him to do that to Buffalo is it's even more egregious and even more odious and even more despicable than for him to do it in a place, you know, like Texas or like California, because Buffalo needs the help. Yeah, it's it's really it's sad. It's more of the human tragedy of the whole story. I, I totally agree. I've been in that area. My sister used to live up there and um, it's exactly as you describe. So. So, you know, I hear, let me leave you with an exit question, if I could. You could. I leave you and your listeners with this question. Since we now have fiscal stimulus for everything, and we're going to run deficits of multi-trillion dollars, why should we pay any taxes? Why not just um, oh, I ask give that us... Oh, I all the time. Let, why are we even paying taxes in the United States? Let's just have the government uh, manufacture the money and uh, have the Federal Reserve, you know, put the debt on its balance sheet, and we can spare ourselves of taxes, and we we can all, you know, and just why not make us all multimillionaires by act of fiat? So wow. that's my question. You would have about a lot where we're of, headed. You would have a lot of broke millionaires if we did uh, that. Yeah. That that would be the answer to that question. But I ask that all the time. I yeah. ask that all the time. I, I've never felt like. I've always been okay paying my taxes. I've never really resented it. I understand that it's, you know, that's how things go. Of course, I am pro lower taxation. I think government, whether it's at a municipal, state, or federal level, is a terrible capital allocator. So I would prefer that not to give them my capital, but I'm okay with paying taxes. But I never felt like more of a chump than I did this year cutting my tax check to the government because I turn around and I see firms like Gerber Kawasaki taking PPP loans and I see hedge funds taking PPP loans and I see guys buying Lamborghinis with PPP loans and we're talking about tens of millions of dollars that will likely be forgiven and or forgotten about, swept under the rug, etc. That is in essence going to become retirement packages for some people and meanwhile you, me, my listeners and the good people of the country are doing the right thing and turning around and voluntarily handing over what amounts to a pittance to the government in uh, tax revenues. Yeah. Well, with the miracles of monetary and fiscal policy we have today, there's just no need for us to pay taxes. And um, we can just allow these miracles to, uh, you know, transubstantiate all our tax liability into 
money in our pocket, I'm hoping. I mean, there's nothing monetary policy can't do, evidently, and nothing fiscal policy can't do in this brave new world. So, Well, where do you think this is going to lead us? I know we're, we're nearing the end of the interview, but I do want to ask you one more time because we touched on macro last time. Where do you think this leads us and, you know, what what are you doing and kind of, I don't know, like, what do you what do you see as a way to kind of hedge yourself personally against what's going on? I mean, Chris, I, uh, there are a lot of people out there far more studied and astute in this than I am. We're, we're headed in a place we've never been before in the United States. We are, you know, engaged in policies that are more extreme and radical and uh, massive in, in, you know, exponentially large than anything we've ever attempted. Right. And on top of that, I, there's this, as I said before, a real fraying of the social fabric. We have such tribalism uh, at both extremes, both extremes. And um, we have, uh, it seems to me, a more profound ignorance of what it means to be a citizen than we've ever had. We have less of an understanding of the way our Constitution works than we've ever had. We have less of an understanding of our history and a more distorted understanding of it uh, than we've ever had. And, um, you know, for me personally, as a lot of people know, I've added gold to my portfolio some months ago. Uh, you know, that's a that's an act of desperation, right? Because gold doesn't produce anything. It's simply a historical store of value I think you need to uh, you know what I, I live without debt which I think is important because it makes me less fragile and I think we have to look for assets that you know and understand uh, that you can uh, th that have some diversity you know in your portfolio you don't want all the same asset class and you want to make sure you really understand what it is you're buying and I almost feel like uh, equities are a dangerous way to invest um, you need real assets you know go buy a house and rent it out go invest in some commodity that you really understand that there will be a need for but you know if you listen to like Mike Green talk about how the forced buying in index funds, if it ever becomes forced selling, everything could go to zero. I mean, it's an extreme scenario, and yet it's not that extreme when you understand how the forced selling works, and then you think about what it might mean if there were forced buying, which there's hardly ever, ever been. So ask other br brighter people than me what they're doing. I'm just going to tell you I'm concerned by it. I'm alarmed by it. And, uh, you know, I'm less optimistic than I've ever been about um, our, the, the future. I, I hope that changes, um, but I, I'm just less optimistic than I've been most of my life. Well, that sounds like a great place to end it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Mr. Have a lovely Skeptic, day. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on a Sunday morning. My listeners appreciate it. I appreciate it. You're a class act as usual. And uh, let's catch up soon. All right, buddy? Really good. Take care, Chris. All right. Bye-bye. That was the one and only Montana Skeptic coming to you live from his underground bunker in Montana, two hours behind the Q-Man, waking up early so that you guys have something to listen to Sunday morning while you 
Really, sounds like it's time to just give up all hope. What I would do is I would open a couple of cans of Budweiser and pour them over your Cheerios this morning, and that's basically how I would eat breakfast for the day and basically for the foreseeable future. Folks, one more time, I want to thank my patrons who make this podcast possible. Patrons sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. You guys have done a great job in stepping up. I lost uh, quite a few patrons during COVID, which I understand completely. So I want to thank those who have uh, stayed with me and who have signed up to help support this content. All right, back soon, fools. I'm out for now. Enjoy your Sunday. Peace.